And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello world! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. And I am Harmony. And this week we are revisiting Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, reading up to page 200. Harmony, what was your impression of Braiding Sweetgrass? And I guess what was your experience with the book in general? Because you were the person who introduced this author to me to begin with last year. I was just thinking about that, just questioning how I came into contact with this book, because I think Maggie has already read the whole thing, and this is her second read. This is not, I've I've never read the whole thing all the way through, but I think that I've been exposed to Robin Wall Kimmerer via a podcast that I really like called Missing Witches, which y'all should should check out because it's it's very close to Rebel Girls Book Club with a spiritual twist and and better research to be honest, um, <laughs> and I think that I also encountered her in some of my information literacy courses because this book is really all about a different way and I I shouldn't say different necessarily but a form of thought and thinking and epistemology that is outside of the ways that we in the West commonly think about the world. And that isn't quite as mainstream among modern people and Western society. So that is my experience with the book. And then I finally just sat down and I think I've read parts before. I know we read it for the podcast, but I think I maybe encountered other parts outside of the podcast and and probably schoolwork. So this was my first time sitting down and reading it all the way through to page 201, not quite all the way through. And it was, it was an interesting experience and I'm sure, I'm sorry I'm going on and on. I want to hear Maggie's take on this experience a little bit because I think we're going to have very different relationships to this content because for those that don't know, I am a hippie and I grew up in kind of a new age spiritual sort of world. So a lot of what Kimmerer talks about in relationship to the earth and her relationship to animism isn't necessarily a new concept for me. It was really cool hearing about it from a true indigenous perspective because I think a lot of the ways that it has been filtered through to me as a white American has derived from indigenous practices both here in North America and probably also from ancient cultures in Europe as well. And it was also interesting because this is something her, her whole idea and perspective is about indigenous ways of knowing and about developing a collectivist relationship with the earth and the people around you and essentially your environment, and that includes other people. And that's something I've been thinking a lot about for the past couple of years. So this was sort of 
it wasn't necessarily new information, but it was information that helped me ground it more practically and see how at least one person is applying the, these sorts of philosophies in the real world and gave me, gave me practical ways to apply these philosophies within my own life so that I'm not just thinking about it and being like, yeah, we should be in a collectivist society. Here are ways that you can use that in the modern world within capitalism. Maggie, what is your relationship to this book? <laughs> no, I think that everything that you said was pretty, was like really spot on and very interesting. I think especially the ways in which indigenous knowledge and indigenous wisdom has been societally kind of co-opted in some cases and sort of filtered through very certain white lenses. I was really thinking about that a lot too while I was reading this book for the first time. My relationship with the book is a little bit more straightforward in that we read the introduction together last year, which is the story about Sky Mother. And I really loved it and had a great time and was like, I'm going to circle back to this. And then in May of this year, I checked out the audiobook from the library, which is narrated by the author and is a really fantastic reading experience, I have to say. And I just absolutely ate it up. It's my favorite book of the year by far, not to spoil future content. But if this isn't at my number one slot when we do our top 10 books of the year, something wild has happened in the next five weeks. I think that for me and people who have been listening to the podcast for a long time probably aren't going to be surprised about this because I think I've been pretty open about this, which is that I have been searching for language for a long time to, to explore and define my relationship with the land around me and my relationship with climate change and things of that nature. And I think that for me, this book gave language to feelings that I've been having for a really long time and wasn't able to articulate very well and gave a new perspective in thinking about all of the feelings that I have in relationship to being somebody who feels really passionately about things like native plant gardening from a very Western perspective or the fact that I feel so connected to the ocean that my therapist often prescribes me going on the ferry because <laughs> I don't take it every day anymore as a way of self-centering and medication and feeling very more connected with myself and the world around me. And I don't mean this to exoticize the indigenous experience by any means. It wasn't like I felt like I was given a piece of knowledge and my entire world was blown open. But I think that for me, this did so much in terms of helping me talk about and define my real desire, which I think is to be in community with the land and the physical place that I live in terms of not necessarily just the people, but the very physicality of the space that I live in. And that's something I think that I've always felt, but has really come to fruition a lot since I moved to the Pacific Northwest and have had a newer relationship with the land because it's much different out here than it is where I grew up in the Northeast. And for me, it just, I don't know, it was just a very healing experience reading this book. I cried a lot reading this book and it was happy tears because it was very much like, this is the language that I've been looking for to describe some of these things. And then taking that back into myself and being like, okay, uh, we can't use all of this language to describe how we've been feeling because I don't want to, you know, appropriate indigenous knowledge and indigenous wisdom. But it just gave me internally a new framework for being like, this is the kind of community I want to be building. This is for me really, I think, the thing that I feel most passionately about in the world and the place where I want to be putting a lot of my time and energy in terms of making change, knowing that 
putting a decent amount of my energy here doesn't mean that I don't care about all of the other human impacts in the world, but just that for me, I think that this is a place where I can make impact in a way that will be healing for me and healing for others if done respectfully and appropriately. So this book, I think, just really helped me cohese mentally so many disparate thoughts I'd been having in a way that was very useful. And I'm very grateful for to Robin for sharing a lot of this knowledge and a lot of this wisdom very openly. I found it very useful. It was a very cathartic experience. And reading it back physically, my copy of this book is so messed up now because it's just dog-eared and underlined everywhere. I also have a lot of dog ears on my book, so that's good to know. <laughs> Maggie, I at least am having kind of a euphoric experience reading this because it's really close to Thanksgiving right now, and I want to get to the text eventually. <laughs> I also, I'm having a very personalized experience because, as we've talked about, I am a spiritual person, and this is where a lot of the spiritual practices I've come into contact with and that have resonated with me have derived from or have been similar to, right? I've practice animism my mother and father are both really passionate about nature and so state parks and things I've been to a lot of them and we've had nature walks and you know I was always taught to ask the plants for permission before I pick them and things like that and that's something I think as I've grown up and modernized and gotten more into the rest of the world the rest of western society have kind of distanced myself from and then now that I'm 27 and coming back to trying to grow my own food talking to plants and stuff again so I want to know I guess about your experience reading this on a personal level because I know for me I'm at a point in my life and maybe this is true for you too even though we're at slightly different points in our lives where I feel like I've just come into a new job and I've we've we've just experienced the pandemic and so I'm suddenly very viscerally awake right to the fact that the world is ending it's been something on the back burner for a while <laughs> and now it's here it's like oh the world is ending we need to get together and fix the the damage that we've caused the damage that our ancestors have caused and develop new ways of thinking and I'm at a point where I've just started this is my contribution this is my contribution to pushing out new ways of thoughts and new ideas and developing community, right? Because I've just started my career as a librarian. And for me, that is a place where I, I, I went into because I feel like I could do some good and I could help build community. And this could be my support and cause information and, and, and community building and all of those great things that come along with librarianship. So reading this book, right on the cusp of Thanksgiving, right on the cusp of all right, I'm stepping onto my path. <laughs> I'm trying to build a better community. I'm growing plants. I'm trying to make the world a more positive place. I just I just contributed to my local farm share and just brought home all of these big veggies. So I'm feeling really connected to these things in lots of big ways. And reading this book, it, I've had an entire week where I'm like, oh my gosh, I am so grateful for the world. I am so grateful for my home. I am so grateful to have these fruits and veggies. I'm grateful to nourish my body. And that's just such a profound experience. And the first half of this book seems to be all about societies of reciprocity. Is that what the word she uses is? Yeah, societies of reciprocity. So I'm wondering if you are also having this experience or if you had this experience upon first reading it and how you're feeling on a personal level, given where you are today, while 
consuming this text. Yeah, so I think for me, I come from a slightly different, a slightly different perspective on this because for me, the fear, not fear, I guess, but the knowledge of the world ending and the very impending doom of climate change didn't fade away during the pandemic or the other things that was going on. I didn't reawaken to it so much. My spouse thinks I'm kind of crazy because in some ways that I'll get into an anxiety spiral and get kind of doomer about things, which makes him laugh a lot. But for me, this has always really been the thing that I've been most concerned about to the point where I low-key have nightmares about it forefront of my mind. And I think that for me, what this book did that was healing is that books about climate change that come from a very white Western lens and Western perspective of scientific knowledge feel very doomer. The way that they try and get points across about relationships to the land and relationships to nature is very, wake up, this is happening, this is coming, we have fucked up big time. And I think that those books and texts are all really useful. But I think that for me, my experience with this was very much Okay, I get it. I'm scared. I've read all the data, right? I, 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 I need better ways to move forward now that also feel like they actually fit into my life and are sustainable. My job is far enough away that I can't take public transit. I need to take my car. I, my house is run entirely on renewable energy, so that's really cool, but other things don't balance out. I'm not in a household that's really willing to go vegan or things like that. What are the actual tangible steps here? How do we move forward? And I think that for me, this book was very healing because... It gave me the space to be on an individual level, thinking about being in reciprocity and in community with nature and in reciprocity and in community with the land that I live on and encouraging others to maybe think differently about that would be, I think, a way that I can really reframe some of my panic about some of this and put it into better context for myself and potentially also others as we talk about it. So I think for me, a lot of the thankfulness was feeling like I had tools and a way forward to be like, okay, this is where my impact is. Because I think that, and we talked about this actually in an episode where we talked about spirituality in general. I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but the places that I feel awe and the places where I feel thankful to be alive have always been in nature. So I don't think that I personally had any extra of that while reading this book because I was very much already in that headspace coming into it which I think is also partially because of where I live I live much closer to nature Harmony lives in the middle of a major metropolis you know I'm a little but bit I more surrounded nature walks and stuff there's nature around yeah but like a bald eagle lives right outside my house like <laughs> that's I you know <laughs> his nest is right there <laughs> during mating season you can hear it in my house which is horrifying frankly but I I just, I think that for me, it's just like very ever present, very at the forefront of my mind. So my thankfulness, I think, is really to have a way forward that doesn't feel just panic and fear induced in that sense. And I think also, I have never been a nature walk person. I don't like hiking. I very rarely go to state parks. And I think that I had a very limited idea of what it meant to be a nature person and what it meant to be in reciprocity with nature in that sense. Because I think for me, it felt very like those are the ways that you do it, right? Those are the ways that you show awe. And the way that Robin Wall Kimmerer described how she lived her life and the relationships that she has with the land around her and the community around her, I think just really speaks more directly to me and the relationship I have with the land around me. Obviously not the same, because again, I'm coming from a very white perspective. But a lot of the things that she talks about and the things that she thinks about 
are things that I was also talking about and thinking about even from a different perspective. And so, so much of that spoke to me that it felt very tangibly, oh yeah, you can be a nature person who's in community and in reciprocity with, with the land around you in your own way. That's cool too. And that for me, I think gave me a lot more confidence as well to dive into my relationship with the land that I live on, if that makes sense. That totally does make sense. I think it's interesting too, because we picked out very different parts of this first, this first, this first half of the book. You're talking a lot about climate change. And for me, that was a part of the book because since we've been born, <laughs> it's been ever present, as Maggie's saying, and to them, it's very big and this needs to be addressed right now. And to me, it's like, oh, this is ever present and really big and scary. And I don't know how to address it because I'm not a lawmaker. And all I can do is compost and recycle and, you know, clean up the beach. <laughs> and I, I read this first part of the book and I was like, this is our solve to moderate society. <laughs> this is my solve to feeling burned out at work, right? I can come home and these are the things I'm doing. She talks about how she she just wants to can peaches, right? And I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. I should start canning. <laughs> so that's kind of cool too. I want to ask you, Maggie, I want to get to the text and I want to ask you some of our syllabus questions, which will be interesting to see how it plays out on a nonfiction book. So how much agency, I guess, does Robin have within these stories? Because the book is kind of structured in little mini essays. And one of the things we like to examine is how much agency characters have. But because this is a memoir, I think it would be interesting to look at this individual perspective and see how much agency she has in the stories that she's talking about. And I guess that can be a kind of a good guide for us, too, because this this is a very inspirational book. You know, it's funny that you say that. I also marked out the passage where she was talking about canning peaches and all of that and was like, yeah, that's who I am. That's what I want to be doing. I want to I want to feel like I'm, I guess, participating in the food making process in that way. And it does totally feel like an antidote to modern society. But then I also want to be careful when I think about that, too, because, of course, indigenous ways of living have they aren't something that they are an antidote you know they aren't the opposite necessarily they're just a practice that white culture has tried to extinguish and I want to be careful about how I think about incorporating things that Robin has shared into my life in a way that isn't appropriative not that I think that canning peaches specifically is I I, I try really hard not to do like an either or when I think about these things because I think that that can be sort of exoticizing of indigenous culture and that's not what I want to do and I don't say that to suggest that that was what you were suggesting but it just floats around in my head when we when we when I think about things that are like, how do I survive capitalism? <laughs> no, that's very fair. Wait, wait, wait. Before you get on to your point, can we explore that topic a little bit more? Because Robin repeatedly calls cultures of reciprocity a sort of medication, and she prefers she refers to nature itself as medication. And your therapist said to go on the boat, so. I think that that maybe we should we should explore that a little bit more. Is this because it is a it is a way of knowing that has been tampered down and beat down by western civilization by colonization and is is treating it as an antidote exoticizing and what parts are in what parts could be used as medication and what parts should we 
just accept and this is just a different thing. This isn't for us. I think that my perspective on those things is very much in how you act upon them, if that makes sense. Because I do think that nature is medicine. And Robin does talk about it in a lot of ways as being medicine. I think that where you can get into trouble is when you co-opt indigenous practices of honoring nature, potentially. Uh, In some cases, when you co-opt indigenous knowledge about using certain plants as medicine, when they also have a spiritual aspect to them. And when you just kind of take from a culture and use that knowledge as medicine without giving thanks and respect to that culture, I think it largely comes down to the idea of appropriation, right? I think that we can talk a lot about nature being medicinal and also know that how we use that medicine might look different depending on what cultural background we come from. I think that for me, taking the fairy is feels like a, a way to really use that medicine that to me doesn't feel like I'm I'm co-opting or taking from anybody's culture. It's just a way that I feel very connected and have a mindful moment to feel the wind on my face and smell the salt and look at the mountains around me and just kind of feel in awe and terrified of Mount Rainier specifically. <laughs> so I think that it all comes back to cultural appropriation and being mindful of that. And then also knowing that the idea of nature as medicine isn't doesn't come from white culture, generally speaking, or doesn't always. And that it, depending on your cultural background and going back, because there's, of course, herbal medicine in every culture around the world, no matter where you are. But a lot of how it's played out today in the U.S. takes a lot from indigenous knowledge without necessarily citing back. So I think that it's just about being really mindful of where you get your information from and whose cultural practices you're using and if you can trying to use cultural practices as long as they're respectful to the earth that come from your background which is all very complicated it's all very complicated i read a book recently that talked about the ways in which that so much of modern western witchcraft is actually taken directly from caribbean voodoo practices and i think that it can be really difficult sometimes as a white person to parse out where certain practices came from and knowing what's culturally appropriate to you and your ancestors and what's not but that doesn't mean it's impossible it's just about tracing back and thinking broadly and doing your research basically and then being respectful and understanding when somebody says you've taken this from my culture you know and backing off of that okay i want to follow this thread <laughs> i'm so sorry so i think there are a few things there are a few things There are white, as Maggie said, right, there are white cultures that have done a lot with plant medicine and that continue to do a lot with plant medicine. Western culture, particularly, we're situated in the States, right? So we are situated in a colonizer culture as white people, where even if we aren't direct descendants of the people who came through and colonized and said, hey, nature is evil, because we do know that that was a big part of Puritan culture and a lot of Christian practices and a lot of the people who were coming here to the States, we're, we're living and, and, and gaining, we're, we're, we're living products of that culture, even if they aren't our direct ancestors. But I think... I think, and I, I want to be careful about this because I I wonder if listeners might also feel this. I don't want to come across as defensive, right? Because I, I am a practicing witch and I know a lot of other people 
who listen to this podcast probably have similar practices or similar spiritual takes. I think that there's, I think you need to be cognizant of where everything comes from, but also understand some things are medicine because they're medicine, right? And there's a difference between harvesting white sage, harvesting Palo Santo, harvesting these, these medicines that are generally stewarded by indigenous cultures who are being directly impacted even today by colonization and then contributing to that colonization by over-harvesting things versus using medicine. Lavender is indigenous to lots of parts of Europe and lots of people do have relationships with that, right? And even if you are, if you're, if I'm in New York, there are going to be certain plant medicines that are indigenous to North America. And I think that you should have a relationship with the pla- the the place you're in. And so those might have originally been derived from native peoples, but there's there's you have to be respectful of over harvesting. And if somebody's saying, "Hey, this is a closed practice. We don't want you to use white sage because your people have been killing white sage." <laughs> so I think that there's an interesting relationship to talk about here. And I was actually thinking about this while reading the book because Robin Wall Kimura has a whole chapter about the Thanksgiving. Yes, it's the honorable harvest that she's talking about. And it's the Thanksgiving address and the people whose address she's she's particularly looking at are the Haudenosaunee. I'm going to double check how I say that. Well, Harmony is checking how she says that. I think that she better explained what I was trying to get at, which I think that there's a Venn diagram here between medicine and spiritual practices and colonial impact here. And that a lot of, I think, responsibly practicing plant medicine as a white person for me is about understanding the relationships between those things and making sure the impact I have doesn't further colonial practices. Thank you for clarifying that, Maggie. I only heard a little bit of that because I was listening to Haudenosaunee, which is how we say that that name. Anyway, she talks about the address from the Haudenosaunee people. And at the end, she's like, I'm not a part of this culture. I felt like I had to ask before sharing these words, before interjecting, before sharing my thoughts on the honorable harvest. But she also says that the when she asked the, the elders, when she asked them, they were like, yeah, we want you to share this. We've been trying to get this message out. This message is good medicine, essentially. And I was thinking about that because I was reading this and I went to work and I was like, I wonder if there's a Thanksgiving address because I, I was so blown away by this address and this idea of collectivism and this idea of honoring yourself to the environment around you and doing it through words. I was like, this would be great to share in some capacity. And I wonder if there's an address that's been shared that is okay to use that I can share with my little library community because I think that patrons might be interested in it and it's just spreading a different way of knowing and I can do that in a kind of non-political way because we're at Thanksgiving time so we're already thinking about these traditions. And the Haudenosaunee had shared a different version of this address on PDF format, a much simpler version that actually worked better for my community anyway where they're just giving thanks to the land around them. And so I went ahead and I printed it and put it nondescript at my library. But I was concerned a little bit because Robin had really thought about this and she had asked elders. 
and I'm just going to the internet and somebody says it's okay and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to share it. So where, what parts of these are medicine? And I wondered too, the community I'm a part of, and I as a white person need to be careful when I say this, but because I, I don't want to conflate cultures, but the community I'm a part of has also experienced really ill effects from colonization, right? And has also had a lot of their spiritual practices, which are different, tampered down. And it's different because we all have had our spiritual practices tampered down. We've all been colonized to a certain extent. But the people I derive from have been colonized a lot earlier in history than other groups of people. Like the indigenous peoples, like a lot of African Americans, like a lot of cultures and societies in the Southern Hemisphere. So... I, I, it was important for me to share that, I think, because I wanted, I know a lot of people still, I, I, this knowledge, this knowledge isn't mainstream, and we're still experiencing the effects of colonization in really real ways, and I thought it could resonate with my community, but I also wasn't sure if I should be the person to share it. I don't know where I'm going with this, but when does an idea, when is it okay to share an idea? Who, who can you how, how do we respectfully share medicine and what is our, our duty, especially if we're outside of a culture, because many of us are going to be outsiders to a certain extent. Even Robin Wall Kimmer expresses an outsideness having lost her culture's language because she grew up in the United States. And so she's a part, she, even though she is not a white American, she is still a part of this time and this place and these effects and still experiencing things that give her a level of outsiderness, maybe a level of privilege that her ancestors didn't have. Okay, I'm gonna pause now and let Maggie talk. <laughs> I mean, I think that there's no right answer to this question because I think that it all comes down to the fact that no one person, no one group can speak for an entire community and give guidelines and be like, yeah, this is okay. And yeah, this isn't. So I think that the way that I have personally thought about sharing knowledge that doesn't come from my own brain, but you know, and especially if it does come from another culture is to make sure that it is publicly available, which it sounds like it is. It's right on their website to begin with and very much just treating it as um, pointing to a source, right? And being like, okay, I know that this source exists. I think it would be helpful if other people know that this source exists. I'm just kind of the conduit here to be like, hey, this is a piece of knowledge that I think might be useful for others and making sure that I'm really intentional and being, and, and basically just sourcing to put it in, you know, very Western terms of being like, this is my source. These are the people who own and steward this knowledge. I just think that I have a platform to make this knowledge potentially more amplified, at least in my little social circle, and to point people back to that. And then I think that on top of that is, and it's, I think, very much what you were saying too, that not being defensive if you're told that that wasn't yours to share, even in the way that you do it, and just kind of apologizing and taking it down and, and taking that into consideration and moving on. And I think that it can be really hard when you have the best of intentions and think that you've done all of the appropriate legwork to do that, to then come back and be like, you still did it wrong. But what you're hearing can sometimes be, you still did this wrong. And in actuality, what it said, what people are saying is just kind of like, hey man, that just wasn't yours to share, you know? Let's just think about this differently in the future. 
which I think is something defensiveness is something we hear so much about in terms of white fragility and anti-racism work in general. And I think that it's all just very intertwined. So for me, that's my philosophy on, on this is just making sure that it's very clear that I am not the owner of this knowledge, making sure that the knowledge that I'm trying to share is widely publicly available to begin with and very much just being like, these are the people who own this knowledge. This is where you get more information about it. But I just wanted to make you aware of this resource and this other way of thinking that I thought you might think is interesting, you know? And I think that going back to where part of this conversation originated, Kimmerer says at the beginning of the chapter, learning the grammar of animacy to be native to a place we must learn to speak its language. And I think that when you're coming from a non-Indigenous perspective, or at least how I think about this, is that learning to speak that language is about learning to speak the language of not just the land, but also how colonialism has impacted that land, so that you as an individual who wants to be in reciprocity with where you live can make sure that you're making both natural choices and human choices that have the least amount of negative impact on those around you. Thank you for that, Maggie. I interrupted you a while ago so that we could follow this medication thread. Do you want to go back to whatever it was that you were saying? I lost that thread. I have no idea what I was saying, but I think that, but I, but, but that I, I don't feel anything pressing that feels like, oh, I really needed to say this. So I think that we probably covered it as we explored this thread. I think it might have derived from the original question, how much agency does Robin, as a character in her own stories, how how much agency does she depict herself having when dealing with, I guess, indigenous ways of knowing and communing with the environment and the land? I think that Robin depicts herself as having a lot of agency, although of course is also very open about what it means to be an indigenous woman working in white supremacist capitalist world. And I think that she's very open about, you know, places where early in her career, she really leaned into scientific knowledge and really leaned into Western knowing and how she wishes that she stood up more for her indigenous wisdom and her indigenous ways of knowing and how gaining that skill to sort of combine and marry those two different thought processes really increased her agency. She talks a lot about, you know, going out and advocating at different sites throughout the book and just thinking very holistically about the environment that she's part of and is around her. I think that the thing that I learned from the way Robin frames her agency is that she does it with so much humility. I think that sometimes agency can be conflated, at least in my mind, I make this mistake occasionally with confidence and knowing and being like, I am doing this thing. I have the power to do this thing. I know that this is the right thing to do. Whereas I think that Robin is making decisions with the best amount of knowledge that she has and is open enough to know that she might not always have the most amount of knowledge and that she needs to go to other sources. And I think on the surface of it, that sounds like a very simple thing to do, but I think that it can be really, really difficult. And so the way that she's able to keep her agency as an individual and also be so open and so humble in the face of knowledge and the face of knowledge of the of the world and and the knowledge that nature so innately has and then also in the other communities that she's working with is i think an aspect of indigenous wisdom that she's trying to get across to us but also was a really powerful part of showcasing somebody having a lot of agency in a very respectful way or using their agency in a very respectful way yeah, I'm going to get personal again. <laughs> I That was a big part of me, too, reading this book and having a sort of euphoria moment because 
perhaps derived from capitalism and and everything that's been going on the covid the after effects of covid as we all live with it i'm constantly feeling like i'm not doing enough right i'm so close to self-actualization here i am i'm so grateful for everything that i've gotten but i'm not doing enough right i'm not going to volunteer at the community garden every weekend. I'm not doing enough as a librarian. I'm not serving my community enough. I'm not doing enough at home or giving enough to my relationships. And it's it's like having having that grace to be like, we are all still learning, right? You don't have to have the answers all the time. Having that grace to be like, it's okay to rely on the help of the earth even. It's okay to rely on the help of your community. It's okay to rely on the help of other sources and recognize that like, oh, we can be wrong and I'm going to go look to the source. I'm going to listen to how the sweet grass grows, right? That's a big thing that she talks about or how the corn stalks grow. I'm going to listen to how the cherry, the not cherries, the strawberries grow. Having this sort of reverence for teachers and, and, and this sort of attitude that like we are learning and it's okay. It's okay that we're learning. It's okay for us not to have the answers really stuck out to me because it is a very western sort of idea this sort of independence i need to have all the answers i need to be right i need to be doing the best that i can all of the time which robin does struggle with too she talks a lot about like how do i be a good mother but even that that's a very humble thing like i want to be a good mother to the world around me because the world around me has mothered me so well i think that so much of agency in this novel talks about owning and taking responsibility for our personal relationships. And it's not, and it's, and it's both our personal relationships in terms of human to human. And it's also our personal relationships with the land and with nature. And how do we responsibly steward those? And how do we make sure that our agency as individuals isn't overshadowing and overpowering the agency of those around us? And showing how that interconnectedness between us all and honoring each other's wisdom and knowledge and agency and knowing that because you have a lot of wisdom or knowledge about one thing doesn't mean that you are omnisciently wisdom, you know, wise and knowledgeable about everything is really valuable. One of the passages in the book, one of my favorite chapters in the book is the chapter that's set up like a very traditional scientific study about sweetgrass where she talks about her relationship with a grad student she was working with Lori and Lori was studying sweetgrass and Lori was by the end of it really open about the fact that in some ways this wasn't a traditional scientific study anymore from western standards because she couldn't she built a personal relationship with the sweetgrass and she built her own relationship with it that wasn't you know taking from indigenous knowledge necessarily, but just being there and watching the grass grow and seeing how it responded created this bond between her that meant that she couldn't be that very sterile, objective scientist that we're all supposed to be when we're doing scientific work in this from this lens. And seeing that her Robin was able as a, as a professor, as her mentor, to help her encourage that and help her grow in that way without pushing her, without being like, well, you have to have this kind of relationship to really understand what's going on here. But just letting her flourish and letting Lori find her own agency in that sense and her own relationship was so beautiful. And I think for me, that was just such an example of the ways in which, again, you can responsibly use your agency as a person to interact with everything. And then I think also a really important piece of framing here is the fact that you have a personal relationship 
with nature and with the land that you live on. And nurturing that relationship can be extremely rewarding both for you and then from the land and then for the land because again it's reciprocal we're all kind of taking care of each other here and really i think that's one of the most powerful ways and a very powerful example for me of how some of these dynamics play out in her essays yeah i agree thank you for bringing up the scientific knowledge thing because i think that's that specifically was how i was introduced to robin walkmer because I was studying how knowledge works and how bias works within knowledge. And I've taken a big break from that studying just because I've got other things going on. But what I did end up finding was this, this fact, the fact that we do all have bias. And in order to, in order to move forward as a society, we need to recognize that bias in our academic work, in the way that we create knowledge systems. And Repeatedly throughout this book, Robin talks about marrying science, which is something that we in the United States in 2022 really associate with Western society and Western cultures and Western ways of thinking with indigenous ways of knowing, which in this book is very specific about our relationship to nature. But if we look at a broader perspective I've really seen it related to simply the idea that we are in communion with everything around us there is an interconnectedness which is a big simplifying but does stand in contrast to this western idea of independence and this idea that we can control and shape everything around us and I wonder how to to me that's really a blend of, of these two things that maybe people who aren't of indigenous ancestry can kind of try and use this idea of like, we are interconnected, right? And also we have logic and how do we marry those two things together? And how can we be more logical about our logic maybe by recognizing interconnectedness? Is that too abstract, Miss Maggie? Do you have any thoughts of that? I think the one thing that I would clarify is that I think that when we say logic it, it, in that way, it kind of implies that indigenous ways of knowing don't use logic. And I know that that's not what you're trying to say, but I think it's just very much talking about the very systematic scientific method. That is so much of what current Western culture defines as being the standard of ways of knowing. And I think that if more of us can open up to the fact that there are multitudes of ways of knowing and that using multitudes of ways of knowing is a really beautiful experience and can give us a much fuller picture of what's going on in the world, then we might get further together, even if it takes a little bit longer, then we'd be in really great shape. But I think when we talk about the interconnectedness of community, I'm brought back to the last chapter that we read as part of this, which is all about the honorable harvest. And Kimmerer lists some rules about the, or guidelines maybe is a better word, about the honorable harvest. And something that's really important to me is that it's, about respecting yourself. It's about respecting the land. And it also, the honorable harvest has guidelines for the fact that you need to share with others. It also talks about the fact that resources aren't just for you. It brings in all three of those aspects together. It's about interconnectedness of community with nature and interconnectedness of community with other people and other animals. So all three of these things marry together to create a respectful way of interacting with the world through this 
set of knowledge and set of guidelines. And I think that to me really, really speaks to me. And I think that part of what I'm taking from this book is that if that's my core and that's my value, how do I develop that for myself in a way that, again, doesn't take from indigenous knowledge, but is influenced by it when is appropriate? Knowing that my goal is to feel like I'm in better community with the people around me, with the animals around me, and with the plants around me, because I think that that will holistically make my world a better place and hopefully make the broader world a better place, even if my impact as an individual might be small. I agree. I think one method that's kind of related, but it it relates to me anyway, (laughs) is that in our everyday lives, we have habits of prioritizing ways of being and, and ways of thinking over others. And to me, that shows up in somebody coming to you and maybe they're nonverbal or maybe they're not great at communicating in that moment or we're not perceiving them as great as communicating and just for me it's important in those moments remind myself that these people aren't stupid or what we're defining as stupid because I think that that's a split reaction that people have all the time I hear it from my friends like oh I'm stupid and even that to me is alarming like you are not stupid you made a mistake or Just because you feel like you are less than in this situation than somebody else does not mean that you actually are less than. So I think for me, when I see people or things or someone doesn't speak a language as well as I do or they don't know how to use the computer as well as I do, remembering that they have knowledge and innate wisdom outside of that and that doesn't make them lesser than is a good practice to kind of keep me being like, there are different ways of knowing. <laughs> there are different ways of knowing. And just because somebody's walking slow does not mean that they are less. I'm a New Yorker, so this is a big thing that maybe New Yorkers can relate to. Just because somebody is walking slow in front of us does not mean that they are somehow less than. Because there are different ways of being, different ways of knowing. And our goal should be to make things as accessible as possible for everybody. Which, yeah, I hope that doesn't sound condescending at all, because that's not my aim. But my, I think that that's a practice that I keep having to come back to for myself and reasserting for myself, because I think that it's really easy to just split second hate somebody for being different all the time. Even if you don't recognize yourself as hating that person, I think that a lot of the negative thoughts that we have in association is actually hateful and that a way to dehumanize people who are different than you. Well, I think that a lot of this comes back to another thing that I really take away from this book that I think ties so deeply into something that you and I talk about on the podcast all the time is that this is a way of disrupting hierarchy. And this is a way of acknowledging the whole self of whoever and whatever that you're dealing with and disrupting the idea that one way of knowing or one way of being is somehow inherently better than another And then taking that outside again of just human to human interactions and then applying that everywhere, you know, knowing that the grass has different ways of knowing, knowing that the trees communicate with each other, even if they do it differently than we do, knowing that or being aware of of all of these things. Because I think that the other piece of here is that the reason why I think that it's there's almost part of the tension here to me also speaks to indigenous wisdom versus scientific knowledge. Something that I've really gathered, I think, over the past couple of years is that we can never truly know anything. 
all we can do is better understand and better see outside of our own perspectives and gather more knowledge for ourselves. But especially when we're talking about experiences that don't align with who we are as individuals, we can only ever truly know ourselves and our experiences. So I love the idea of framing things too from the lens of wisdom and the idea that it's okay to not know, quote unquote, and that that can really open us up to different methods of thinking and understanding the world as best that we can. Yes, I agree. Is there anything really big that you want to talk about? I'm looking at our our guiding questions that we haven't talked about already because we are hitting on the hour mark. No, I think that that was most of the big themes that that I really noticed. Would it be appropriative if we just give thanks to, to some things? Like, what are what are you grateful to, Miss Maggie? Because this is going to be coming out on Monday, <laughs> Sunday. So Thanksgiving is really right around the corner. And as we all know, that is a practice that derived from Indigenous people in North America and, you know, has since been colonized. But I feel like especially after reading the first half of this book, taking the the part of like, oh, we're grateful and, and thankful isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just important to recognize, oh, <laughs> we stole a whole country from people and like completely betrayed them and all of those other great, bad, horrible things that we did to build the United States. Anyway, I think the being thankful part, though, is important and maybe good medicine. All right, well, I guess I'll go first then. I'm really grateful for my apartment with its beautiful light because it allows me to grow lots of seedlings and I'm really grateful to my seedlings and I'm very grateful for the food that I have because I've been cooking a lot and it's been really nice and I'm grateful to be hosting a dinner soon for my family and I'm really grateful for my job even though that sounds like capitalist scum because it's given me a lot of new insight and it's allowed me to be a part of community in a way that I haven't ever gotten to be a part of community before and given me a really tangible way to give back to my community in a way that I haven't felt I had the capacity or ability to do before. I'm grateful for the support systems and the support networks in my life, personal and professional and the friends that I have. I There's been a lot of things happening in Harmony and I's lives recently where I think we've really seen the support system that we created in college playing out in a really beautiful way through some really hard times. And even though the hard things aren't happening to me, it just makes me feel really grateful to have a family that I built and that I picked and that even though we all live across the country, we're really there for each other. I'm grateful for the land that I live on and for the Coast Salish elders past and present who have been stewarding this land for since time immemorial and who continue to do that to do that work today even through the pain of capitalism and colonialism that makes that work more difficult than it should be and more violent than it needed to be i'm grateful for my spouse who's been a really supportive person as as i'm navigating also a job change and just i don't know a time of discovering identity in my life And I'm grateful to be just, I think, in community with all of the people that I'm in community with. I'm grateful for the food on my table and the place that I'm at in my life. And I'm grateful for all of the learning that I was able to do this year and all of the learning that I'll be able to do in the future. That was so beautiful. I'm I'm grateful for all those things too, world. (laughs) I want to steal all Maggie's stuff. Just like a colonizer. 
It's ingrained in us. Cannot escape it. Was yours is mine. But I'm happy to share. Happy to share the things that I'm thankful for. Yes. Yeah, I guess I'm not actually stealing because I don't want to take those away from you. I just also want to be thankful for them. We're sharing. We're sharing. sharing. Oh, there's enough for everybody to go around. (laughs) Is there anything else we got to talk about before we wrap up this episode? I don't think so. What are you reading right now? I kind of want to talk about what I've been reading recreationally. Okay, well, next week we're, we're back with the same book, just reading from page 201 to the end, my friends. So if you haven't had a chance to pick it up yet, I highly suggest you do. And I highly suggest the audiobook. Robin does a really great job narrating it. It's a very intense experience. What I am reading recreationally is I am reading Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. I'm reading The First Binding by R.R. Vritti. And I am rereading A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. What are you reading? I said that, but now I have to figure out what the series is called. <laughs> so I have been, I discovered this wonderful genre that I had actually discovered before, but didn't ever engage with because I, I was too, I was too, I was being too pretentious about it, which is silly because pretension is never good. Okay. So the title of the series that I've started, I've started Cozy Mysteries and it's just one series. And in a matter of days, I've just been powering through these audiobooks because they're just so good and so wish fulfillment-y. And I've actually been really good to read beside this this first half of Braiding Sweetgrass. So it's called Which Way Library and Mystery. Um, <laughs> and it's by Angela M. Sanders. And the books are about a woman who moves to a rural town in Oregon and solves murder mysteries and and gets to like be a librarian and live in this mansion where the library happens to be and and meets all of these wonderful Oregon characters and also discovers that she has powers and is a witch she's actually actually I don't want to spoil it for you all but she has powers and she is a witch and her witchy powers really resonated with me I was like this is also my personal calling (laughs) and it's just really magnificent because it feels so cozy, but it also kind of like, and, and it parallels so much to my life because I'm a librarian, so it's lots of wish fulfillment, but it felt really good to read and has been really nice to read because it's kind of, even though I live in New York City and have a different array of characters, and even though I'm not solving murder mysteries, right, the hard things in my life feel less glamorous and less cozy and comfortable than what's going on here. It's also been very cold here. So this is this is my cold time reading. It, it kind of has reminded me to be extra grateful for the things that I have in my life and the beautiful community that I do have of friends both far away and then also people I keep meeting and discovering and don't feel as much emotional intimacy with yet, but am really grateful to have in my life still. And... Yeah, I don't know. It's like this beautiful form of witch fulfillment that I'm like projecting onto my own life and is helping me a lot through the cold times. It is okay to be cold and miserable now because I am making my life as cozy as it can be, god damn it. And I am grateful for the coziness. <laughs> yeah, okay. I love that for you. I also got into cozy mysteries this year. And you know what? It's just another one of those things that I feel like is very 
I don't know. There's so many genres of media that are so, I think, influenced especially by misogyny and the, the enjoyment of which is looked down upon as being lesser for some reason because a lot of the authors are either women or a lot of the core readers are women. And I feel like Cozy Mysteries is one of those genres that gets looked down upon because of it and because they, I think, can sometimes be viewed as being very fluffy and lush for film many. But I'm here for it. I want it. Give it all to me. I think that it's really empowering and powerful to have a story where you can go through hard things and everything can still be okay. You can get through those hard things. I desperately need to use the bathroom though. So <laughs> we got to wrap up. Thank you all so much for coming. Harmony, I love you. I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Love you too. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at rebelgirlsbook1 on Twitter and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.